0: The Old Pilot's plain Tales. Bravo November. The boys at Vertol thought they had a winner, and they were right. They had started work in 1957 on a new design of heavy lift helicopter using a tandem rotor layout, one at the front and one at the back. Employing gas turbine engines instead of the more common piston-powered helicopters, this was going to be a powerful machine. By coincidence, the US Army were looking for just such a helicopter to replace its first generation of heavy-lift craft, the Sikorsky CH-37 Mojave, and the newly christened CH-47 Chinook looked promising. The CH-46C Knight version would be taken on by the Marines whilst a heavier derivative, the CH-47A, went to the Army. The Chinook was a remarkably versatile aircraft. It had several means of loading cargo through multiple doors across the fuselage as well as a large ramp at the back. In addition, three cargo hooks could carry underslung loads. The ungainly-looking machine was fast as well, with a top speed of 200 miles an hour, which was considerably quicker than the contemporary attack helicopters of the time. Other air forces were attracted to this amazing workhorse, including the Royal Air Force which purchased the Boeing version in 1978 and have continued to operate the Chinook with great success, eventually taking a total of 60 by 2015. It was fortuitous that the decision had been made to employ this flexible and capable helicopter as within a year or two, RAF Chinooks would be off to a fighting war. In 1981, General Leopold Galtieri and his junta took power in Argentina following a military coup. The Argentinian Congress had been suspended and trade unions, political parties and provincial governments were banned and Galtieri started a dirty war on his own people that saw thousands of Argentinian citizens disappear. After only four months in office and with the economy in deep recession, the Gautieri government invaded the Falkland Islands, hoping to mobilise the long-standing patriotic feelings of the Argentinians towards what they called the Malvinas. Anti-Junta demonstrations were replaced by patriotic displays of support, and the tactics seemed to be working, but... What Galtieri didn't count on was the determination of one lady, the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. After an overwhelming force of Argentinian troops landed on the island, there had been a short firefight, but it soon became obvious that the Marine Detachment there would be overwhelmed. Governor Rex Hunt ordered the surrender. As the Royal Marines were ignominiously stripped of their weapons and marched away, one famously said, Don't make yourself too comfy, mate. We'll be back. What Gautieri hadn't counted on was Britain's determination to sail a task force halfway around the world to retake this remote group of islands populated by only 1,800 people but who overwhelmingly considered themselves British and wished to remain so. The task force assembled was hastily put together and involved 127 ships from the Royal Navy, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, and the Merchant Navy, which consisted of civilian vessels pressed into service. One such ship was the Atlantic Conveyor, a roll-on, roll-off container ship. She wasn't vast, massing a little under 15,000 tonnes, but on board were some vital assets that would be needed for the landings and the battles ahead. These included six Wessex helicopters, eight Sea Harriers from the fleet air arm, and six RAF Harrier GR3s, as well as four RAF Chinook HC1s. The conveyor wasn't just a cargo vessel – By the time modifications had been completed she was a tiny aircraft carrier as well. The ship's container hold was covered with steel plating and a replenishment at sea system was fitted to allow refuelling. ISO containers were stacked on the deck to provide shelter and accommodation for the 100 service personnel who would maintain the aircraft. Landing pads were built for both the helicopters and the Harriers and below decks there was valuable cargo space which was filled with bombs, rockets, missiles, grenades and small arms ammunition. The roll-on, roll-off vehicle decks were used for all manner of military stores including tents for the entire task force, equipment for the Harrier Forward Operating Base Trucks, combat support boats, specialist spares, rubber fuel tanks, water desalination equipment, generators and the like. On the deck, the Wessex helicopters could be stored with their rotor blades folded, but to carry the Chinooks, the huge blades had to be physically unbolted, a dangerous task on a moving ship. Approaching the exclusion zone around the Falklands, the Harriers were flown off the deck and repositioned on the two British aircraft carriers, whilst the Wessex and one of the Chinook helicopters started to operate, transferring stores and personnel around the fleet. The island of St. Georgia was the first on the list to be retaken, and a troop of special forces and marines were landed to attack the Argentinian forces there. A the submarine was spotted resupplying the garrison, and was attacked with depth charges and torpedoes by Navy helicopters and wrecked. The Santa Fe, which in a previous life had been the USS Catfish, was abandoned by its crew and it sank beside the jetty. A force of 76 British troops were assembled and they made a direct assault on the garrison, which surrendered without resistance. The next operation was the Black Buck Raid on Stanley Airfield, a subject that I've covered in another tale, but eventually it was time to establish a beachhead on the main island itself. Attacks on the task force by Argentinian Skyhawks, Daggers, Canberras and Mirage 3s had already taken place. But then the cruiser General Belgrano was sunk by the British submarine HMS Conqueror as it manoeuvred around the edge of the exclusion zone. This had the crucial effect of forcing the entire Argentinian fleet to return to port where it remained for the rest of the conflict. Four days later, the British destroyer, HMS Sheffield, was lost to an Exocet missile strike, followed by the sinking of the frigates HMS Ardent and Antelope. Other British ships were bombed, but since the air defence cover was so intense, the Argentinian bombs often failed to fuse since they were being released from such a low altitude that they had insufficient time to arm. It was on the 25th of May that another Argentinian attack started. The beachhead had now been established, and the Atlantic conveyor was told to move into San Carlos water, under cover of darkness, to disembark all its helicopters and begin transferring stores. Suddenly, the code word handbrake was transmitted, indicating that someone had detected the radar emissions from Argentinian superlaton da attack aircraft. The captain of the conveyor sounded emergency stations. A number of warships deployed chaff clouds as countermeasures against the incoming missiles, and the exocets were successfully pulled away from their initial targets— but then the missiles burst through the aluminium foil clouds and looked for new radar returns. A mile in front of them was the Atlantic conveyor. Both missiles struck the hull of the ship and exploded. Secondary explosions soon started from the munitions still stored on board and despite desperate efforts to save his ship, 25 minutes later... Captain North ordered his crew to abandon her. Twelve men were lost, including the captain, along with the entire complement of helicopters, which were all back on the deck except for one, the Chinook Bravo November. It was a black day for the task force commander, as he had planned to move his forces around the islands rapidly and easily, using these heavy-lift machines, delivering troops that would be fresh to fight and keeping them well-equipped. Deprived of the Atlantic conveyor, the RAF had lost not only its helicopters that were on the deck, but all the spares, service manuals, lubricants and tools. It was a major setback but with classic determination, the British forces calmly set themselves to the task of marching across the treacherous and unforgiving terrain of the Falklands in the filthy wet weather, carrying everything they needed on their backs. They had to sleep for weeks under ponchos in freezing temperatures and on sodden ground, suffering from trench foot and dysentery. Despite this, the Royal Marine Commandos, the Parachute Regiment, Scots Guards, Welsh Guards and Gurkha Rifles famously covered the last 56 miles in three days carrying more than 80 pounds, that's 36 kilos, on their backs and then went straight into battle. Yomping, as the Paras would call it, became a word so popular it was soon part of the English Dictionary. The lone remaining Chinook, Bravo November, flew a never-ending series of missions throughout the campaign. Often working continuously for over 20 hours a day, the machine carried on with a minimum amount of maintenance. It was just a matter of patching it up as best they could and sending it up again. The small detachment was under the command of squadron leader Dick Langworthy, and having no field equipment, like the troops, they operated from foxholes. Despite a total lack of aircraft spares, Zulu Alpha 718 was flown continuously in support of the battle from the 27th of May until the ceasefire. On the night of May 30th, Bravo November was tasked with delivering weapons to SAS troops who were under sustained artillery fire. Carrying three 105mm Howitzer guns in its cargo space, plus 22 men and crates of ammunition slung underneath, the Chinook took off under the command of Squadron Needle Langworthy and his co-pilot, Flight Lieutenant Andy Lawless. Flying with the use of night vision goggles, they struggled to find a place suitable to dump the underslung load, so that it would be in the right spot for the gun crews to retrieve and set up on the uneven ground. The Chinook had flown straight into an active fire zone, and they could see troops firing their weapons right beneath them as they tried not to sink into the soft ground. Eventually, after 40 minutes in the drop zone, and despite a cabin lighting failure, they delivered the guns and set off to pick up more, only to run into a snowstorm. At this point, the crew's night vision equipment became useless. Whilst unbeknown to them, the weather was also causing their altimeter to misread, and accurate height-keeping became impossible. Suddenly, in the darkness, the aircraft impacted the water at about 100 knots, and a bow wave came up over the cockpit to the point where the engines were actually ingesting water and failing. Dick heaved back on the controls and dragged the helicopter out of danger, but the impact had ripped off the radio antenna, there were holes in the fuselage, and Bravo November was missing a cockpit door, letting the freezing weather in. They limped back with all their lights on, in the hope that the anti-aircraft missile defence crews would realise who they were and hold fire. On the 2nd of June 1982, two companies of paratroopers were flown from Goose Green to seize the settlement of Fitzroy. 81 paratroopers squeezed into Bravo November, which was twice its normal capacity and became a world-record load for the Chinook. Once landed, the helicopter returned to Goose Green to pick up a second load. By the end of the conflict... Bravo November had carried around 1,500 troops, 95 casualties, 650 prisoners of war and 550 tonnes of cargo. Squadron Little Langworthy was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his bravery at the controls of Bravo November during the Falklands conflict. Sadly, though, he died of a heart attack a year later, after returning to the Falkland Islands to command the Chinook detachment there. On board Bravo November, there's now a small brass plaque to honour Dick Langworthy's efforts on that dreadful night. Bravo November, though, continued bravely on. It was modified up to the latest HC Mark II standard, and was next in action during the Iraq War, being the first British helicopter to land Royal Marines ashore to seize oil-pumping facilities before Iraqi troops could destroy them. The second, a DFC for bravery whilst at the controls of Bravo November, was awarded to Squadron leader Steve Carr for his role in an operation in Iraq. He overcame adverse weather conditions with appalling visibility in dust and smoke, all whilst dodging relentless opposition fire. During a three-day period, the aircraft averaged 19 flight hours a day, delivering combat vehicles, artillery and troops. The mission was the first opposed British helicopter assault since the Suez Crisis in 1956 and the largest in British military helicopter history. This was also the first time in RAF history that two pilots had received the DFC in different conflicts whilst flying the same aircraft. But the story doesn't end there. While serving in the Afghanistan conflict, Flight Lieutenant Craig Wilson received the third Distinguished Flying Cross for exceptional courage and outstanding airmanship whilst operating in Helmand Province. During the night of the 11th of June 2006, Craig was tasked with picking up a casualty in Bravo November. The mission was successful despite the difficult and dangerous conditions that required Craig to fly the aircraft at ultra-low level. A few hours later, the helicopter was called out again, with him safely completing this mission, despite being very low on fuel. After being on duty constantly for over 22 hours, Craig then volunteered for a further task to take reinforcements to the front line, returning with two wounded soldiers. For his actions, over the 24-hour period, flying Bravo in November, he was also awarded the DFC. Finally, in 2010, Bravo November was involved in another incident whilst on service in Afghanistan when its pilot, Flight Lieutenant Ian Fortune, was hit by a ricocheting bullet fired by the Taliban during an extraction of injured soldiers. Ian had landed the helicopter in a hot zone that was under heavy fire and his aircraft was hit numerous times. One round struck Ian's helmet at the attachment point for his night vision goggles and smashed through his visor. Despite being injured and bleeding, he stayed at the controls of the aircraft and continued to rescue his wounded colleagues and then fly his damaged helicopter back to base. For his actions, he was awarded the fourth Distinguished Flying Cross given whilst flying this aircraft. Chinook Zulu Alpha 718, Bravo November, continues to serve on active duty to this very day. If you enjoyed this story, then please let your friends know about it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.